Should I pay off las deudas or invest the extra cash? That is the question. And Janely Spinal is here today to tell us all about it. Janely is a Latina, Brooklyn-born, ball of energy. She's an educator with a gift for storytelling and a passion for, for explaining financial concepts in a straightforward way. While working as an elementary school teacher, she decided to change her financial life by paying off $20,000 of credit card debt in just 18 months. Wow. In 2015, she started Miss Be Helpful, a YouTube and Instagram platform that now has over 5 million views to help others learn the money skill she never learned in school. Janelle currently serves as the Director of Educational Outreach at NextGen Personal Finance, a nonprofit working to ensure that every high schooler gets a full semester of personal fin finance education. She is the youngest member of the CNBC Financial Wellness Advisory Council, the host of Financially Inclined for Marketplace, 18 podcasts about important money lessons. Y mujeres, sumamente inspiring. She is the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Mind Your Money. Realmente un honor tener como invitada en nuestro show a powerhouse Latina como Janely Espinar. Let's dive in. Hola, ladies. ¿Cómo están? Bienvenida a Jugando Tus Fichas. Hola, Marlene. Hola, Evelyn. ¿Cómo están? Hola, Hola bombones. Hola, Belincita. Hola, Doctora, pero tú sí estás buena moza hoy. ¿Qué es lo tuyo? Yo dame ese trick. Está preciosa. Bueno, Me imagínate. Mucho, mucho, mucho libro que estoy leyendo y comiendo. Ana esa Melena, caramba, esta mujer Ay, es tan bella. Me lavé el pelo ayer. Um, y, y mujeres, hoy estamos Ay, grabando a las nueve de la noche. Mm. Estamos un poquito ya al final del día de un largo día de trabajo, pero sumamente emocionadas porque tenemos una invitada especial de Anneli Espinal, Miss B. Helpful. And welcome, Janelis. How are you? Hola, ¿cómo estás? Hello. Hola a todos. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Este, esta conversación es tan importante, especialmente en la comunidad latina, que no hablamos mucho del dinero. So I'm here to talk about it. We <laughs> actually talk about like money is our cuco. You know what cuco yes. is? <laughs> it's, it's essentially the, the, the topic that we all that touch our life, but we don't know, we don't know, we, we don't know, like, we don't like to talk about it because mm -hmm. it's scary, right? That's so true. Yeah, that's, that's true across many cultures, but especially for Latino cultures, it's like we're taught to, shh, no hable de eso, don't no ask questions eso. about it. Yeah. Mira lo bajo de la alfombra. Claro. so true. <laughs> so <laughs> true. Abajo de colchón. Mm. <laughs> so, tenemos una pregunta para entrar, eh, Janely, okay. um, y vamos a tirar a ver entrar en materia, porque yo sé que esto es un tema bien, bien profundo. So, the first question that we have, given that we've been talking, you know, so many different topics on, on money, one thing that has come through the whole series of season two is like, should I keep my money and save it, or should I use my money to eliminate debt? So, the first mm -hmm. question is, What comes first? Do you eliminate the debt and then invest? Or you just like put aside a little bit of money? Like tell us 
all your nuggets and expertise on that because I want to hear about it. I, I that will be so beneficial. I think even the conversations we're having so far. You know, I wish the answer was so easy that it would be like this is the one to prioritize, and that's it. But the answer is not that simple because depende, right? It depends mm. on your situation and it specifically depends on the math. A lot of times people forget that money, while it's emotional, while it's social, while it has so many different connotations behind it, it's basically math. <laughs> so you just have to run the numbers and figure out what is more of a priority for you financially based on the math behind your situation. So a quick example you know, I graduated college with $20,000 of credit card debt, credit card debt at a high interest rate, you know, above 20% on my credit cards. So if I wanted to invest in, let's say my 401k or, or an IRA, so an investment account that allows me to put money away for retirement and specifically to put that money into investments like stocks or, you know, index funds or ETFs, anything in the stock market. Historically, when you look at the average return on those types of investments, you're going to get about nine, maybe 10% on average per year. The credit card is charging me 23% every year. So does it make sense for me to put my money somewhere where I'm hoping to get back 10% on average per year or to eliminate a 23% interest being charged to me per year? So the math there clearly says the 23% is more than twice of what you would be getting in the market. So you could get 23% return right now just by can't, just by cutting off that credit card and paying that off. But if I had graduated college with $20,000 of student loan debt, que viene una tasa de interés much lower. So we're talking about, you know, 5%, maybe 4%. So if my student loans are $20,000 at 5%, now, should I prioritize putting all of my money in an investment account where I'm going to get 10% or should I prioritize paying off this 5% interest? Well, the market is going to give me two times what I owe in this interest rate for my student loan. So in that case, I should put the minimum payments towards my interest to or towards my uh, payments to my student loans and try to invest as much as I can, even while I have that debt, because the market returns historically two times the return that you're going to get by paying off this 5% interest rate. So really, it's a math equation. Where does the math show you that you should be prioritizing to put more money towards? Wow. Um, thank you, Janelle, for giving us examples, because that's usually the the question, like when, when like I never asked, but you putting it into the math, is what makes it make sense. Yes. So versus, you know, like looking at your interest in your credit card versus what you are trying to get in return for your investment. O sea que en, en lenguaje plano, señores, mire cuál es su interés de su tarjeta de crédito, compárela con lo que usted recibiría como ganancia si pone un dinero a generar a través de su cuenta de retiro. Y si es un 9% versus un 23%, usted sabe que debe de pagar primero su deuda y luego ya pues dice, ok, ya yo pagué mi deuda y puedo poner este 23% towards my um, retirement. So, pero si eso es su, su uh, préstamo de escuela, que es simplemente un 5%, y su retorno cuando usted hace una inversión es 10%, ya ahí la matemática le dice, o sea, ponga más en la inversión porque va a recibir más en, en, en ganancias. O sea que simplemente you gotta sit down. There is no perfect answer to that. Exactly. You really have to know your numbers. And I'll tell you this, a lot of people will say, bueno, how am I supposed to know 
what the return is going to be in my investment account. It's impossible to really know. And that's where this gets tricky because you are trying to make the best decision you can with the information that you have, but you have limited information. The only right. thing you know for sure is what you owe in debt and what interest you're being charged on that debt. Right. But right. in terms of investments, I mean, even Walter Mercado won't know. Like you don't know, you don't know the future. A crystal ball, no one's going to be able to tell me what the stock market is going to return right. me in the next year. But what you can do is look at historical returns. Exactly. And my that's what I was favorite, say. my favorite resource for that, I'll tell you, and I will share the link so you can put it in the show notes for the podcast, is um NYU Stern has a really great resource page on web, which has all of the returns of stocks bonds and treasury bills from the government between 1928 and 2023 so or actually end wow. of 2022 because you know we're still in the middle of 2023 but it's the best data set that i have found so i'll send it to you and then of course share it with everybody that's listening can you share like quickly before i know evelyn wants to jump in like if people i mean for someone like me for example like i would love to jump into this stuff and then create like analysis or an overview of my finances right and figure out like oh you know i think i have a good idea of like my we pay off our credit card every month but like say that a student loans right and make that comparison all that what will, what will be your recommendation like will people go with someone to someone like you like can they hire an advisor always we have this idea that advisors financial advisors cost a lot of money just wondering if you have some point of view on that yeah, I think if you are the type of person that is comfortable doing data analysis, you can probably do it yourself. If you're comfortable with Excel or with Google spreadsheets, if you're comfortable just, you know, typing in the data and then taking a look at it and analyzing, okay, well, this is this is the inputs for my debt. This is the inputs for historical returns in the market. Let me compare them and see what makes more sense for me. If you're comfortable doing that, you can probably just do this yourself in a quick spreadsheet and you can just pull up a um you know, online search up like how to make a comparison between my debts and my and investing and make the best choice. There's going to be articles about how to calculate it and how to compare it. But I won't lie to you. A lot of people don't feel comfortable doing data analysis. So that type of person, either they don't feel comfortable doing it or they don't have time and they just don't want that to do that because they have so many other things going on. Then I would say it is totally fine to meet with a financial advisor. However, Financial advisors, the reason why they have such a reputation for being so expensive is because they don't tell you how much it costs. They give you a percentage fee that you're going to pay every year based on how much you have. So the more money you have, the more they charge because it's a percentage of your money. So if I come to them with $100 and they charge me 1%, then I'm going to give them $1. But if I come to them with $500 and they charge 1%, then they're going to make $5. So they make more money, the more money I have when I meet with them. And that's a little shady for a lot of people. They say, but how does that make sense? If I go to the store para comprar unos zapatos, no me van a cobrar más porque yo gano más. The shoes cost what they cost. So right, why right. do you charge me a percent instead of just telling me the price? What is the price for this, right? So there are some advisors that are called fee-only fiduciary. That's my only and favorite type of advisor that I would ever meet with and that I would only ever recommend anybody meet with. Fee-only fiduciary. So let's Take break notes. that down. <laughs> yeah, and let's break it down because I don't like to share something and then I'll tell you what it means. Fee-only means 
that this person is only making money from the fee that you pay them. And most of the time, it's an hourly fee. So if you meet with me for one hour, it's $500. And you know exactly what you pay and exactly how much you owe. It's not a percentage thing. It's $500 to meet with me, and that's a consultation. So that's the fee only. And the reason fee only matters is because there's other types of advisors like fee-based advisors or commission advisors. Those types of advisors, they actually make money when they sell you a specific product that mm. they're being paid to push to you. That's dangerous. Okay, mi gente, if you go into a store and you say, I want to buy a pair of shoes that matches this dress and my dress is green. So they come to you and they go, do you need help? Yes, I need help. I'm looking for shoes to match this green dress. Now, they're, if they're really helping you because they want to help you for your best interest, they're going to look for shoes that match with green, maybe brown or maybe beige or some nude shoes or, you know, they're going to look for something that go goes well with green. If they are being told that every pair of purple shoes or red shoes that they sell, they're going to get 10% commission. They're going to forget that your dress is green. They don't care what color your dress is. They're just going to tell you, I got the best shoes for you. They're red. The red and the purple shoes over here, they're going to, you want these shoes. These are the ones that are going to look the best with yeah. your dress. They're not going to ask you what color your dress is. They have a mission to get their commission. So it's very important to keep that in mind with financial advisors. They can get paid for pushing you certain products, certain investments, and you that's not good for you. That's good for them. So what you want is the fee only which means they only get paid by a fee, not commissions, not fee-based, no, fee-only. And then fiduciary means that they took an oath to say that they're only going to give you advice based on what is best for you, given your goals, your financial situation. So a lot of advisors out there, they're not fiduciary, which means that they can tell you something based on, you know, what they think, what they would do, what's best for them, what, you know, what their company is trying to promote but not keeping your interests in mind and your goals in mind. So it's sort of like doctors, they take the Hippocratic oath that they're going to do everything they can to keep this client, to keep the customer, uh, the patient alive. And it, even if that means that, you know, they have to do something that's really risky, but if it's what they have to do to keep you alive, they took the Hippocratic oath, they're going to do it. The same thing is with the fiduciary. It's an oath that says, as an advisor, I'm going to give you only what is necessary for you based on your goals, not what I, you know, what I would tell somebody else based on what I want to sell, but based on you. So fee only fiduciary. Thank you, Janelle. This is, this is very important for our communities to hear because oftentimes, a, you know, advisors have the gift of gab. Right. Oh, and so oh. they sound like experts. And so they sound like they know something that we don't know. And so we want to, you know, we see their advice as expert. Yes. And so at, at, at minimum, now we know we look for fee only fiduciary advisors and, you know, we trust that they're going to have our good, our best interest in mind. Definitely. And not and then, the big and, boutique names yes. or the big company names or the big names that we see on TV, because, you know, yeah. we're constantly being marketed at. That's true. And if you, and that's okay. If you do, if you have somebody that's recommending that you meet with their advisor, but my advisor is the best, you know, I trust her. Yo trabajo con ya 30 años. You know, trust me, go to this person. This is my girl, go to her. And that's fine. Go ahead. Take that free consultation meeting, sit with them. But your wow. question before you leave that meeting, it should be, are you a fiduciary advisor? If they say no, or if they say, um, well, you know, it's all mm. because like, you know, 
No. no. Then you need to say, no, okay, I, so the answer is no, you're not a fiduciary. In that case, you don't come back to that person. You say, you know, I'm going to think about what I learned from you here today. I got your contact information. I'll reach out in a few more days. I just want to think about this before I make a commitment. Don't ever let somebody make you feel like you have to sign up now. You have to give me this much money today. If, if anybody's pressuring you to do something like right now, right away with money, that's a red flag. And you should not do anything until you feel confident. So, and that's true for sales and that's true for, for everything, for, for everything, but it's especially true when it comes to you making financial moves, investments, um, and savings vehicles, nobody should be pressuring you to do something. Cause there's no difference between me doing it today and me doing it tomorrow. So why are you mm -hmm. trying to pressure me? Because they make, uh, there's something in it for them. They make profit. So being careful about asking the right questions. Are you fee only fiduciary? How do you make money? You know, these are the types of questions to ask to make sure you you know and understand clearly you know if this person is really in it for your best best interest or you know, how they make money yeah so the question that i have floating around in my head is around debt because i hear a lot of um entrepreneurs and financial just folks in the finance world saying that there's good debt and there's bad debt and you need debt to make money but really how much debt is too much debt right because <laughs> At the end of the day, debt is debt. That's right. So is like there anything the, we should do? You know, I don't like that good debt, bad debt. Like mm, debt, it's debt. Debt is debt, right? And all debt is ultimately not an asset to you. Whether you like to say, oh, it could eventually become an asset. It's not currently an asset. An asset is something that is growing in value and adding positive net worth to your financial situation. Debt is something that is adding negative net worth to your financial situation. So it's removing wealth from you instead of adding wealth to your, your net worth. So debt is debt. Ultimately, I see all debt as debt. You're going to owe that money. You have to pay it back. It's a liability no matter what it was for, no matter what the reason was. So to me, when they say like good bet and, and bad, good bet, good debt and bad debt, what they're doing is they're trying to justify borrowing for a certain thing for a certain reason, but not for others. And to me, borrowing is borrowing. As long as we borrow responsibly, I don't see a problem with borrowing money. But most people don't borrow responsibly. They borrow irresponsibly. And so we shouldn't be saying good debt or bad debt. We should be saying borrowing responsibly and, and borrowing in a way that's not responsible. Okay, so those that's it. <laughs> to okay. me, that's the distinction that I think matters more is, is it a responsible use of debt or not a responsible use of debt? So, um, you know, when I, in terms of how much debt is too debt, I think it's a good, too much debt. I think that's a good question. I would say it really depends on what's, what's the need for the debt. So when it comes to student loans, for example, which is one of the number one things that are crippling, especially my generation, I'm millennials, and a lot of other Americans today that they're not buying a house, they're not having children, they're not taking vacations because they owe so much in their student loans. So for the next generation, what's going to change? Nothing's going to change if the government keeps on allowing us to borrow way more money than, you know, we, we have to our name at a very young age. So what needs to change is the education around this. So how much is too much debt when you have a student loan that you want to take on? I think that the best rule I've ever heard for this is the 1x rule, which is that you calculate what is a 1x my salary in the job that I'm going to be able to get with this degree when I graduate. So, for example, I went to college and I got a history of art and architecture, visual arts and urban studies, triple concentration. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just majored in all three things. Right. 
Now, in my mind, I was going to graduate college and go work as a manager, a community manager in a museum setting or, you know, a, a community director for an arts public program. So when you look at those jobs on LinkedIn, you Glassdoor, you know, you look for those types of positions. They don't pay a lot. They'll pay maybe about $55,000, $65,000. So that's one times my first year salary would be about, let's say, $60,000. That means the most I should take on for student loan debt for all four years of college should not be more than $60,000. 1x your salary when you graduate. Now, if you're going to uh, become a doctor or a lawyer, then your salary is going to be probably about $150,000, maybe $200,000. So now your maximum to take on is $150,000, $200,000 to graduate from college. So somebody says, oh, I have $150,000 of student loan debt. I'm not going to be so shocked. I'm going to ask them, are you a lawyer or a doctor? Because that makes sense. But if you're a elementary school teacher, that does not <laughs> that make, sense. make sense. That's irresponsible borrowing for an elementary school teacher to have $150,000 of debt. It's responsible borrowing for a, a, a doctor or lawyer to have $150,000 of debt. So it's not good debt to take on student loan debt. It's responsible for the person who's going to make one time that in their salary, and it's irresponsible for somebody who's making significantly less. So that's why I prefer the responsible versus irresponsible and using formulas like that to help us. With home ownership, there's a debt to income ratio. You need to have about somewhere between 35 or 40 percent. And that's the maximum they would really allow for you to borrow in terms of your debt to income ratio. If you have more than 40% of your income that you owe in debt, it's going to be harder for you to get a mortgage. So this, because they don't want you to be irresponsible borrowing. So they kind of cap it. They look for like somewhere less than 36% is ideal for a debt to income ratio to qualify for a mortgage. So every kind of type of debt is slightly different. But I would say keeping credit card debt and consumer debt as low as possible is the best thing to do. Student loan debt one times your salary when you graduate and below 36% for your debt to income ratio on a home mortgage loan. Those are the rules I would say like I like to share and I like to follow um, because otherwise everything's bad debt or good debt. And, and that's not really helpful, I would say, for most people, especially mm -hmm. in communities of color, because let's be real, we need to borrow. We don't have the option to decide not to borrow because we don't otherwise have the access or opportunities if we don't borrow the money to pursue things like a college degree or to get a car so that we can work, go to work and things like that. And, and thank you, Janelle por hacer esas, esas especificaciones uh, con respecto a que si usted se va a graduar, saber que cuánto le va a costar su escuela. And I'm going to challenge um, a little bit the responsible versus irresponsible. I think I'm going to challenge it in the sense that I think it's a lack of education. Because to be honest with you, I, I, I feel like a decent, well-educated woman. And the one-time rule this is the first time that I hear it in a way that I can understand it. So with wow. that said, I think it's the lack of education that we've been given from the educational institutions, from the government, like you said earlier, when you're with your legislative advocacy that you do. So, señores, yo le digo a Janelis que le, le reto un poquito esa idea de eh, presta, de coger prestado responsable versus irresponsable porque también es mucha falta de educación que tenemos en el sistema educativo en las instituciones antes de ofrecer este tipo de 
de préstamos, como decías tú, un doctor que vaya a la universidad, obviamente sus ingresos van a ser muy diferentes a los de una maestra eh, que vaya a enseñar escuela elemental. So I think it's a matter of us now that we are aware to share that and educate. And I think that's the work you want to do. So yes. we are not surprised with this kind of conversation because we have had a couple of financial people in the podcast. And you're the first one, to be honest with you, that gives me things that I can put into perspective. And I think that's what we want to do with our audience. Yes. They stop to think, okay, ¿Qué es, en vez de qué es responsable, qué es menos responsable, qué puedo yo hacer con lo que voy a, a estudiar o lo que voy a coger prestado o con lo que voy a comprar una casa. O sea, que siempre es conciencia y, señores, la educación. Education is power. Definitely. Education is power and I think that's why it's so hard for government sometimes to push for that because when you are educated, your decisions are going to impact mm -hmm. the people at the top, right? Definitely. So I think we Definitely. need to keep that in mind. That oh, I love that, Evelyn. I would, I, would, I would probably, if I had to like change how I would say it because I like that, that challenge, I would say healthy versus unhealthy. Exactly. A healthy amount of debt a healthy way to borrow versus an unhealthy amount of debt or an unhealthy way of borrowing. Because I do think you're right. When you say responsible versus irresponsible, la culpa se la echa la persona. Like you're claro. irresponsible. When exactly. that's not true, you have not been exposed to these ideas and these formulas and this thought process. So I, I like healthy versus unhealthy. So I'm going to start saying that instead eh, because una cantidad de deuda saludable versus no saludable claro. es diferente que una persona siendo responsable o irresponsable, which is not your fault, la no es la tuya, it's that, that education that has been lacking. So mm -hmm. thank you, because I'm going to change that. I like that. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I always say to my husband, if we have made an informed decision and the outcome is very different from what we want, at least we know that we did the research, that we did the work, and we made an informed decision that turned out yes. to be different, and we can learn from that to make it even a better decision later on. Yes. So just being mindful about those things I think are really relevant, especially when we talk about money. Yep. I love that. And, and, and be kind, right? Like, obviously, mm. one thing that's part of that journey, or I, I, I like to call it money journey, is that, and I, I'll be honest, right? Um, I saw a lot of the financial habits from my parents, but I was very lucky also that I did not get into debt so early in my, right, in my journey. Like when I was a teenager, I was not, I was not, I didn't have any of those like store credit cards and all that stuff, right? Which actually set people into that journey of like the unhealthy habits, right, early on. So I'm curious to hear, a little bit on like tangible ways for people that have a little bit more on the unhealthy side in the meaning and, and maybe I, I really love that framework um you know unhealthy in the way in the sense of for example um we have a lot of credit card credit card debt right we're not talking about mortgage right mortgage sometimes will take you 30 years to unless you can pay it off which is awesome right a dream <laughs> <laughs> but i'm talking about people that probably want to get in the right healthy side of things right like can you share one two strategies and also i want to also throw out at you <laughs> share with you a little bit more like for those people that probably don't want to get an extra job to reduce 
I mean, to increase their income, to pay that debt, if you can share some strategy that can just help rearrange your finances in a way that can be doable. Yeah. I mean, I like this question a lot because I think this is a lot of people. I think this is most people that they're already uh, working as much as they can, given their family situation, their relationships, or the needs that their parents, their aging parents have. And so there's so much, but so much we can do with the limited time that we have. And so if you're already doing as much as you can to earn money and you're where you can be, then there's only two things that you can do. Earn more, which if you can't and you're at your capacity there, then spend less. So what this means is being really intentional about every dollar that you spend. And this is hard because this has nothing to do with the math. This is now the psychology. And that is very difficult for people. I mean, I recently had a talk with my sister who is a single mom of three of two daughters. And she oftentimes finds herself, you know, Starbucks, getting the girls Starbucks or going to Old Navy to buy them things. And I, I will say to her, you know, Tita, you, you keep on telling me that you envision yourself owning a home for your girls. But yet, when I see you constantly getting the girls Starbucks and Old Navy and shopping here and going there and throwing them fancy birthday parties, I see all the money that you could be putting towards a down payment for a house, you're choosing to spend it in these ways instead. So talk to me, you know, what's going on? And she said to me, she was in tears, like, this is what happened. I see myself doing the repeating the same thing that we experienced these traumas as a child, where I would say, mommy, yo quiero, you know, ese zapato. And mommy would say, no, no hay dinero, no se puede comprar, we can't get that. And constantly being told no, 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 because growing up in poverty, oftentimes there is no money. That's true, el dinero no está, like we can't buy these things. We, we truly cannot if we want to pay the light bill, if we want to buy groceries. And that's the reality of a lot of families, especially low-income families and immigrant families. So when you think about those types of things, you know, you like you don't want to you you as a parent want to provide your children better a lot of times than what you had than what your parents could with you. So I see my sister dealing with the psychology of like, I don't want to deprive my girls. I don't want to tell them no, because I remember the pain of hearing mommy constantly say no to me. And so I'm like explaining to her, OK, so have you talked to the girls about this? Have you said to them, you know, let's sit down and let's talk about how, you know, all the things that we want to do and which ones can we do in order to still achieve our big goal? Because we all want to buy a house. Like mommy wants to buy a house. We want to have a house for ourselves, right? So if we want to do that, then we can only pick wow. one or the other. We can either go to Old Navy or we can go to Starbucks. So let's choose what do we love more so that we can still put the wow. rest of the money to the house. So, and she said, I have never had that conversation with my girls and she was like I'm going to do that I'm going to start doing that with them and telling them you know we have goals and if we if we do this now we're not going to be able to, to reach our goal or we're going to delay that goal into the future so the first thing I would tell you to do before you even get a calculator start getting a budget doing the numbers and trying to cut back on spending before you do any of that it's it's the mental work first the psychology right sit and reflect like where are you realistically willing to go with the money and having those conversations with your children, with your parents, with your siblings, with your partner, your spouse, 
that is the first step, making sure we're all on the same page and we're using the right language and then look at the budget and say, okay, en serio, no necesito cafecito todo lo día. Like maybe I will get my coffee. <laughs> like maybe I make my coffee at home and once in a while, get You're my You're speaking to, to all of us. I know. Ah, pues, mm -hmm. then you know that I'm not, you know, making this stuff up because this is realistic. And little habit changes, like making your coffee at home, packing your lunch. Like, and these are nice. things that we, we know how to do these things. Come on. I, when I was growing up, my mom would always pack rice and beans that were left over until Tupperware and be like, mira, para la escuela mañana. Like we, this is in our blood. We do this. So- Let's go back to that so that we can prioritize the things that will help us reach our financial goals in a healthy way without us having to work three, four, five jobs and never spend time with our children or with our partners or with our parents. It doesn't have to look like that. It can look other ways, but we have to know where to make certain sacrifices and where to be realistic and have a little bit of tough love on ourselves. Mm. You know how someone framed that previously? Money healing. I love that. It, it really is. Yeah. And I will tell you, Janelle, I of all people am one of those people that says que la caja de los muertos no viene con bolsillo, right? <laughs> That's true, Wait, though. <laughs> well, it is true. It is true, right? But also, right? Like, you just can't spend it all while you're alive. Right. What I really like about the way you explain this is this is the first time. No se rían de mí, señores. But I'm being vulnerable. Then or something. Pero, pero, pero no. We're we're enjoying the vulner vulnerability. <laughs> this is the first time I have heard someone explain it, the changes in psychology that have to happen, not from a scarcity perspective. Like you're literally telling me I'm gonna have less because you are, but you're you're explaining it in a very abundant way. So in my mind, I'm like I'm gonna have more, but in actuality, I'm gonna have less. Yeah, you're gonna have less so, now to make room for more later. later. Right. Yes. And it's Oof. and it's and this is the language. first time. This is Estoy the first time. Less is more. And yes. if we apply that to money, I mean you're speaking to my heart, Janelli. So I, I feel it. like I've been in a journey also that I'm trying to maximize experiences over spending money. And this is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. I think that's a great example, Janelle. And I don't want to, we want to hear about your book. However, I do have like two little questions. I don't know. Hopefully you can answer those those quickly. Um, you talked about financial advisors. I do have a question regarding the word coach. It's kind of very used right now. I don't want to say Overused. negatively or exactly. Yeah, I, I just trying to not be so negative about it. Um, so when we think about financial coach, is that a good idea? And second of all, um, when somebody has, let's say, $40,000 in debt and they want to look into a financial coach, but the financial coach says, you know, to see to work with me will be $400 a month. What like what do you do in that case? Because this person is overwhelmed, right, with so mm -hmm. much debt, and then she's looking to this person as like a savior, um, and then, but I'm like, where am I gonna come from with these four hundred dollars? So, what are your thoughts on financial coaches, and is it a realistic goal when you have so much debt? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you the truth. If I'm going to pay hundreds of dollars a month, I want that person to have certified credentials. Certified credentials is not calling yourself a coach. 
right? A coach can be anybody. I, I could call myself a coach. I'm a money coach, right? Yeah, sure. But do I have real credentials, right? And certifications in this area? Am I a certified financial educator? Am I a certified financial advisor or CFA, charter holder? Am I a financial advisor in any aspect of that word? The term coach, anyone can call themselves that. And so it's very tricky with that term. Whereas with the term advisor, you, like I, I'm not a financial advisor. You cannot call me a financial advisor because I don't have my, I'm not a charter holder. I don't have my CFA, which is certified financial advisor status. I need to complete many hours of studying, take an exam and understand everything about money from budgeting, from credit, from investing, from taxes, insurance to estate planning. It is not just a little, let me make you a little budget. And then let me text you every week to encourage you to, to save that cute, that cute coaching stuff, that's great. And that's right for certain people. But if you're charging hundreds of dollars, you should be where you have, you got to have some type of, of credentialing. So I would say coach could be right for you for a certain price point. If it's hefty and it's expensive, look to a person who's charging that same rate, but has the credentials to back that up. So a fee only fiduciary advisor is much better than a money coach if they're both charging you five hundred dollars. Right. Perfect. Thank and you. And Janelle, how do you wanna like? I, I I know I make the frame at the beginning as an advisor. Like I know you're. I really love how you are called on social media, Miss Be, Be Helpful. Be how helpful. would you? How you want people to know you as yeah. in this field? I love this question. So I refer to myself as a financial educator. Uh, mm. And I, the reason why I say that is because my credentials is a master's in education. I actually have my master's in education and I taught in the public school system for several years before I pivoted over to financial literacy education mm. specifically. So when you ask me, what are my credentials in education? I actually studied to be a teacher and educator and I worked in that field. So when I when I'm asked about my work now, I do the same thing, education, but with a focus in personal finance and financial literacy now. So it's just a more specific lens. Um, if I charge money for things that I do, for example, like a workshop on Zoom, it's nowhere near hundreds or thousands of dollars. We're talking about, you know, maybe $70 to join me. And why? Because my expertise obviously has some value. So if you're going to buy a ticket to this event, we're going to learn together. But there's no way I'm going to be charging 500 plus dollars for something when I don't have a specific credential in that aspect. So I cannot give advice about investments. Anybody who's giving you advice about investments needs to be a financial advisor with a credential. So CFA charter holder. And if they're giving you investment advice and they're not certified to do that, that's a red flag because it's illegal. It's illegal to give investment advice if you are not qualified to give individualized financial and investment advice to someone. Let's amplify that. I actually want to call it again, right? Like a, a financial mm -hmm. educator, educator. I love that. But also that's a good call to action, Janelle, because there's a lot of, I, I really love how people feel empowered in social media to educate. But I also have seen people give advice that probably don't have the credential in the history on such a, an important topic as it is money. And I think right. it, it is across the yes. board, right? Like we see it in all the different areas, That's right? That's very true. Yeah. You know, I, one of the really, one of the things that I like about you and your work, Janelle, is that you have this multi-pronged approach to changing financial mindsets, right? Like you do your legislative work and I know that we're, you have mind your money, which we're going to learn a little bit more about in a minute or two. Um, you have your YouTube channel where you educate 
Like you were educating for years. You have your social media account. You were posting on that account for years before you wrote the book, before you started doing like the bigger collaborations, right? And so like you are educating from every angle. To me, that's impact. Yeah. Right. Because you're getting the younger generation, you're getting the older generation, you're getting like the professionals, the bloggers, the like in every class. Um, and so I it's one of the things I really, really, really love about your work. And I saw that fire in you back in 2018 when I met yeah. you and look at you like this is amazing. And one of the reasons I know that finance education work, I will tell you this. I have two kids, one of which is in public school, one of which is in private school. Mm-hmm. My son, who is in private school. Um, finance education was part of his curriculum Mm. in senior year. He came home one day asking me about credit score and adding him to my Ah, my credit card as an authorized user, as an authorized user. Mm. (laughs) And like he got his graduation money and no comprado nada. And so I'm like, puppy, what are you going to do with your graduation money? He's like, I'm going to save it. So already right like unlike my my child in public school who of course is much younger um and hasn't had that education but if you give her two hundred dollars she's gonna spend it right so it goes to show you the difference that it can make oh and this is before he even goes to college like Mm. regardless of whether his mom is a first gen anything or not like he's set on that front yeah and And that's the difference that that it makes a hundred percent. I mean, if it's about exposure, if you have only ever been exposed to the adults in your life spending money, yeah. then you view money as a tool for buying things. But when you start to be exposed to new ideas and you start exploring things besides spending that you can do with money, like investing, like gifting, like saving, you know, when you start thinking about, oh, money, money has so many use cases, not just to spend it on buying things that I want, but I could do a lot. I can make impact. I can give to charity. I can give to causes that I care about. I can give a gift to someone that I love. I can invest and grow this into the future, into wealth that can really make a difference for me, my family, my community. These are ideas that are not just going to come to you and land in your head when you're 15. Someone has to explicitly teach you the many use cases of money. And that happens in a financial literacy class. Mm -hmm. So lucky that your son has that, but also that at such a young age, they've already been exposed to these ideas. Yes. So in closing, we have one last question for you. And then we definitely want to hear about Mind Your Money. Um, What has been the biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons you've learned in this journey? So, I mean, a little bit of what we talked about, which is that the psychology comes first before any of the math that comes with money. For some reason, people are so scared of the math of money and the interest rates and the percentage of my credit score and how much money I'm supposed to have saved. And and that's not the scary part. The scary part is the psychology. Have you sat with yourself and reflected on your traumas that you've had around finances in your life? about any, you know, mistakes that you've made with money that you need to forgive yourself for any, you know, really sitting with yourself and almost having like a money therapy with yourself. Because when, if you don't do any of that, you're going to set up the budget, you're going to set up the debt repayment plan, you're going to put a plan in place to increase your credit score. And the moment that it starts to get a little hard, you're just going to give up. 
because you haven't done the real work of having that real why, that motivation, that inspiration that's making you say, no, this is something that I really want internally, intrinsically, not because, you know, I, w- I want this house or because I want this car. Those external things aren't going to motivate you. You really have to do that internal work. And I, it, for me, that's part of the reason why for so long, I kept on messing up with money. I, I would make a budget and I wouldn't stick to it. I would, you know, say I was going to stop using my credit cards. I would end up using them anyway. And I couldn't find the, you know, they, they call it discipline, but I don't really think it's discipline. I think it's the root reason why inside of you, why do you want to be better with money? And have you even found that why? And if you haven't found it yet, then you got work to do, honey, before you make a budget, before you do the credit score calculation, those things, the math, the math part, even though it seems a little scary, that's the easy part. The psychology, the mentality, the money mindset work, the forgiveness, the crying, the re- being real with yourself, that stuff with money has to happen first. So you can finally be in a place where you're like, now I'm serious about moving forward, leaving all of those things in the past and not taking it with me into my future, into my financial future. But if you don't address it, it's going to come with you into your financial future. Oh. You're never really going to be able to move forward without it. Bueno, antes de que no haga llorar, porque estamos en el tiempo posible. Todos los cucos, todos los cucos no están saliendo. Obviamente, esto es como losing weight, ¿verdad? Right? Like y and, and, and carrying, like, um, Marlene knows this phrase that I always use, like, that black cloud, right, mm-hmm. in your head. Like, if you are yes. carrying that, and, I, and it's so funny, like, you're speaking to me also, I'm also in that weight loss journey, and it's the same thing. Like, if you don't have the mindset, you will go back to, the same black hole right of course of course because it's gonna get hard and that's the the reality is it's going to get hard you know in my book i put that if you want to create a plan to get out of debt or to change your life in any way your plan has to include what's going to happen when i give up because it's not about if i'm going to give up it's when i'm going to give up because i'm only human there's going to be a day where i'm going to give up i'm going to say i'm not making i'm not i'm not going to look at the budget today i can't i was supposed to run the budget numbers today i'm not doing it that's you know people would say oh you're giving up no what are you going to do in that moment you're going to say okay i'm recognizing that i'm not getting it done now even though i'm supposed to so in this moment i knew it was going to happen i planned to fail i planned for failure now that i'm not getting it done what happens now So now I have a plan. Okay, I'm going to look at my notes. Oh, I said that when I don't make my budget on the day I was supposed to, I'm going to text my best friend. I'm going to tell her, hey, boo, I didn't get my budget done tonight, even though I was supposed to. Can you hold me accountable to make sure that I get it done by within four days of you getting this text message? Please just keep on calling me and texting me until I get it done. And so now it's like it's okay to fail because you know what you're going to do when it happens. And I think a lot of people, they put a plan in place and they are all excited about it and they never ask themselves, well, but what happens when I derail from this plan, when I don't follow through? Because it's gonna, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And when it happens, do you know exactly what steps you're going to take to keep going? So to me, mm-hmm. that's a huge part of this journey is having a plan in place for when you fail, right? And how you're going to make sure you keep yourself accountable to continue moving forward. Oh, wow. I mean, this bueno. is like wellness 101, right? Like one thing that actually I'm going to share very quickly because you just spoke to my heart that right there, like in my journey with losing weight, one thing that they tell you is exactly that. Like one day you probably had that plate of I mean, milk. That pasta, have your pasta, but the next day you have to back up into it, right? Yes. Like it's the same thing with money, right? So thank you yes. for sharing that. That's such a good perspective. Like plan mm-hmm. for it, 
but move on and get back mm-hmm. on track. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And include the people that you love. I include my best friend. I include my mom. Like I include my sister mm-hmm. because I know they're going to motivate me. They understand what I'm going through. And if I falter, they're, they're, they're going to help me. So I either call them or text them. So include people that you know are going to bring you joy, positivity, inspiration, motivation to keep going. Okay, well, bueno, con todo eso, um, I think it will be important to close with Mind Your Money, uh, mm-hmm. tu libro, tu bebé. I know it's not easy to write a book, um, but the, the beautiful thing is like Marlene said, you've been doing it for a long time. So it's like it's coming full circle with the book. What can you tell us about Mind Your Money and why should people go, you know, take a chance on it? Yeah, so I have read dozens and dozens of books about money. I picked up my very first finance book when I was in my early 20s. Um, you know, I was struggling with credit card debt and I didn't have any self-control when it came to spending. I was a shopaholic and I would just spend money without thinking about it. Just put it on the credit card. I'll figure it out later. And um, I picked up a book called Women and Money by Susie Orman. That was the mm-hmm. very first book that I ever read about money. And thank goodness it was written by a woman who is very confident in her uh, ability to talk to other women about why this specifically matters for us as women. And for me, I grew up in a household where I saw my mom and dad, very traditional kind of breakdown. You know, Papi made the money and mommy would have to ask him for some of it when she needed it for things. And he would have to, you know, think about it and see if there was enough and Constantly, you know, my mom never had the control and the power over money. And I I know noticed that and I knew at an early age I didn't want to be the type of woman who was always having to ask a man for money. So early on, I read that Susie Orman book. It was the first kind of seed that was planted in my mind about, you know, my relationship with money as a woman and fixing, you know, the the mistakes that I had made with my credit card debt and all of the shopping problems that I had. So I got real with myself, but that was just the first book. I read so many more. I became obsessed with personal finance and money management, and I've read so many books. But one thing that I felt was missing from all of the books that I've ever read about money was the personal stories that we oftentimes do not talk about as if they are relevant to money when they are honestly the most relevant thing to your money that's out there. You know, more relevant than your credit score and your budget and your savings rate and how much match you get from your 401k. More relevant to any of that is your personal stories and how you got to where you are right now. So I decided I'm going to write a personal finance book that is a mix of personal finance and personal stories because we cannot put the stories aside and pretend that our cultural experience, religious experiences, social experiences, friendships, emotional, mental health, the, the dynamic between our parents and us, our siblings and us. All of these things affect the way we use money, the way we think about money, the values that we have about money and the, and the habits, how we use, you know, what we do with money when we get it. So I, my, my book is really a combination of stories and strategies. And I really want to elevate, especially first generation Latinos who have had the experience of seeing their parents struggle financially and having to be the one to take the weight of the world on your shoulders, not only figure it out for yourself financially, but also for your parents and sometimes simultaneously children at the same time. So you literally are navigating finances for three generations all at once and how much of a burden that can feel like it is. But instead, let's flip that upside down and say it's not a burden. It's empowering because we have so much impact on our parents, on our children and on our own financial situation. So that's why it's even more important than ever to if you are in that situation to really 
get control of your finances. So that's what the book does. It's empowering you to, you know, combine your personal finances with your personal stories and see the connections and then make a path forward. I agree. I agree. I agree. The I think single I'm... best investment we can make. We can do a book club. We really should. Yes. Oh, I would love that. I'm working on um, a resource That's guide now. Idea. So what the book clubs that do decide that they want to use it, that they'll have like, you know, questions and like videos that I create, like little snippets behind the scenes things and explanations for different parts of the book. Um, but yeah, anybody who's listening, if you want to buy the book, it's available mindyourmoneybook.com. The website actually has the descriptions of each of the chapters in the book, some little behind the scenes about me and the link to buy the book. So that's mindyourmoneybook.com. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Janelli, for all the information, all the tangibles y nada, señores. Creo que, como ella decía, lo más importante de dónde viene nuestra necesidad de gastar yes. uh, to address the emotional um, connections to our spending. I think it's important making sure that you find the proper professionals, eh, que busquen los profesionales adecuados. Y, señores, ahí está Google. Porque yo sé que utilizaste algunos términos, Janelle, y que a lo mejor la gente no conoce lo que nos escuchan. Algunos, ¿verdad? Right. Porque queremos educar a todo el mundo, a la mamá, a la hija, a la que sí tiene esa exposición a estos términos. Entremos yes. a Google. You know, what's the difference? What's an what is it certified yes. financial advisor? What are the differences? Mm -hmm. So, la educación. Cuando no sepamos algo como vamos a Google a buscar dónde está la tienda, vamos a Google a educarnos Eso. de que lo de qué son ciertas cosas, términos financieros y, y educarnos en esa parte. Y, y me gustó mucho la, la conversación con los hijos. So, señores, hablemos con nuestra familia porque principalmente las madres, los hombres no se, dan, no, están, no se dan cuenta de qué necesitan sus hijos. O sea, yo vivo con mi esposo, pero mi esposo no sabe si a mi niño le faltan una media o qué necesitan. So, es verdad, o sea... Yo le digo a Scott que lo cambia todos los días. Babe, does the kid need anything? Oh, I don't know. And I'm like, but you're dressing them up every day. What do you mean? You're the one that dressed them up every morning. So as mothers, we have the responsibility to make sure that our children have everything they need. So having the conversation with, with them about what's a need and what's mm. a want. And where are we at financially as a family to decide whether we're going to take that need or that want. Así que importante que nos pongamos en la misma página con los hijos, con la familia, que nos eduquemos emocionalmente y acerca de lo que es el dinero. Y siempre y cuando usted tenga una duda, busque a alguien que sepa un poquito más que usted. Pero la educación y la responsabilidad emocional de donde venga ese gasto es lo más importante y educar a nuestros hijos ya en lo que es la carrera que vayan a elegir para saber cuándo y cuánto pueden tomar prestado para convertirse en profesionales así que yes. I think that's the like a sneak peek of what Janelle said or a little quick summary of yes. what she said but I think more than anything let's look at the resources that Annabelle is going to share on the podcast details and I think we're going to be successful and make sure to get the book Mind Your Money yes I think it's going to be amazing and thank you for sharing everything thank you ladies this is amazing and I love what you're doing on your platform so everybody out there listening you know this honestly is something that you shouldn't keep it to yourself when you hear this podcast yes. episode and it makes you feel send it to someone that you know needs send it to a friend a cousin a tia these are the types of conversations that i wish we were all having you know over cafecito over un vinito like the reality is we tend to not have them in right. person but if you can have this podcast that you share with so many of the people in your life that you don't need it it's also like having that conversation in real life, right? So just send it to someone that you know needs to hear this because 
having these conversations is important, but the more people that can access them, the more impact that they can really make. And thank you Amen. for inviting me on, ladies. Muchísimas gracias. This was a beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Janelle. Such a pleasure. And have a good night. Awesome. Have We're looking forward to night. I know. I feel like I know. Back. This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yes, this was yes, therapy. Yes. This was therapy. And I agree. I agree. Thank you for your for your work and for the movement that I know you're creating and thank you're sustaining, you. Janelle. This is thank amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. This was beautiful. Have an amazing night and rest of your week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Chicas, esto es todo por hoy en Jugando Tus Fichas. Don't forget to sign up to our email list at www.jugandotusfichas.com and subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. While you're at it, tell us cómo tú juegas tus fichas or your challenges. If you have a wonderful Latina in your tribe that will enjoy this podcast, go ahead, share it. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Hasta la próxima. Till next time.